Hello, and welcome back to Laurel Canyon Country. On today's episode, uh, we're going to talk about two of the founding members of the Birds, Jim McGuinn, and we'll pick up with Chris Hillman's story after the demise of his first band, the Scottsville Squirrel Barkers. We'll also uh, get a little bit into how the Beatles changed the course of not only McGuinn and Hillman's life, but also American music and just the culture at large. It's 1963, and the folk music boom is in full swing. Paul and Paula are topping the charts with their hit, Hey Paula, while Dion and Peter, Paul, and Mary have big hits with Ruby Baby and Puff the Magic Dragon, respectively. Bob Dylan's second album, Freewheelin' Bob Dylan, is released and goes to number 22 on the Billboard charts. Unlike his first album, this new Dylan record features 11 original compositions out of the 13 songs, including Blowin' in the Wind and Girl from the North Country. The Beatles also released their second single, Please Please Me. It goes to number two in the UK, but doesn't even chart in the US. Out in California, the folk music boom is still in full swing. The Ashgrove is packed nightly with performances from all sorts of folk groups. Hoot Night at the Troubadour Bar in L.A. is the place where all the folkies gather to jam, sing, and look for new members for their groups. There are record releases in 1963 by several California bluegrass groups, the Kentucky Colonels, the Dillards, and of course, Chris Hillman and the Scottsville Squirrel Barkers. Since the breakup of the Scottsville Squirrel Barkers, Chris Hillman had headed back home on his Honda motorcycle to Los Angeles with his mandolin and a duffel bag full of clothes. He had no plans and nothing on his radar. Within just a few weeks back home with his mother and sister in L.A., Chris ran into a pal he had grown up with in Rancho Santa Fe. He bummed a ride on the back of a flatbed truck up to San Francisco and started hunting for a job. Chris wasn't able to find work in San Francisco, but his old squirrel barker pal, Ed Douglas, tracked him down. Ed said that Don Parmley, the leader of the bluegrass group the Golden State Boys, were looking for him. They needed a mandolin player, and they were looking for Hillman. The Golden State Boys were a band that had played on Cal Worthington's TV show, Cal's Corral. Cal Worthington was a car dealer in the Los Angeles area, and he would give a Dodge station wagon to the bands that were a part of the show. Hillman had grown up watching Cal's Corral in high school and was thrilled to audition for the band, even if it meant flying back down to L.A., where he had just moved from. Hillman arrived in L.A. the next day and showed up at Don Parmalee's garage with his mandolin, duffel bag, and no money in his pockets. Don introduced Chris to the two other members of the band, two brothers named Vern and Rex Gosden. The audition turned into a rehearsal, and before Chris knew it, he was headed off to Jackpot, Nevada for a two-week gig at a local casino. The band became fast friends over that time, gelled quickly, by playing three to four shows a night over the next two weeks. After their date in Jackpot, the band came back home to California. The band played on a very regular basis. Besides their appearances on the Cal's Corral TV show, they had regular gigs at the cowboy bars outside of L.A. and a weekly live radio show in Long Beach called The Squeaking Deacon Show. The band soon found themselves in a similar spot Hillman had been in with the Squirrel Barkers. To get more gigs, to get better gigs, they needed a record deal. 
Fortunately, Chris had kept in touch with Jim Dixon, the recording engineer who had gotten him and the Squirrel Barkers a deal with Crown Records. Chris called Dixon, and Dixon agreed to come down to Hoot Night at the Troubadour to hear the band play. Dixon was blown away by what he saw and heard. The playing and singing were head and shoulders above Hillman's previous group. Dixon wanted to get them into the studio right away. Dixon's goal was to record an album with the Golden State Boys, now calling themselves the Hillmen in honor of their new virtuoso mandolin player, and shop the recording around to Vanguard or Elektra, the big folk labels at the time. The first day in the studio, the boys played their standard bluegrass numbers, traditional songs by Flat and Scruggs or Bill Monroe. Dixon thought that was fine, but he encouraged the group to branch out. Try arranging a Woody Guthrie or a Bob Dylan song in a bluegrass style. Nobody needed to hear a bluegrass group playing the same old tunes, he said. You have to bring something new. Sadly, the record deal never materialized, and the Golden State Boys just weren't making enough money to sustain the band. Even Hillman, the only unmarried member of the group, was having a hard time making ends meet. Eventually, the group split up, and they all went their separate ways. Hillman went searching for a day job with no luck. After being turned down for an apprentice machinist job and a job washing cars, Hillman found himself another job playing mandolin. He ended up not even needing to audition for the gig. He simply walked into Ledbetter's, the new club owned and operated by new Christy Menstrel's guru, Randy Sparks, and was given the job of the mandolin player and singer in the Greengrass group. The gig was awful. Randy wrote all the songs for the group and staged all their performances. The band featured Larry Murray on dobro and lead vocals, two old San Diego pals, Pete Soxie on guitar and Marilyn Powell on dulcimer, a stand-up bassist, and an English woman named Patty Hill who played the banjo. The final member was Dwayne Story, a great bluegrass guitarist and singer-songwriter. The gig played $100 a week, which wasn't bad for 1963, and offered housing in a ranch-style home in Encino, California. 1963 ended with a whimper, but on February 9th of 1964, everything would change for Chris Hillman. In fact, Hillman didn't know it, but he was already on a path to meet his next musical partner, Jim McGuinn. Jim McGuinn always liked gadgets and science. Rockets, spaceships, television. Any new discovery or technology fascinated him, and it still does to this day. In fact, when Jim grew older and changed his name to Roger, he almost changed it to Rocket McGuinn. When Jim was 13, he was gifted a transistor radio. The radio was more than just a radio to him. It was freedom. He was no longer tethered to the big brown vacuum tube radio that his parents used, and he could listen to the music he wanted to hear, which was rock and roll. McGuinn says he would ride around on his bicycle with his little radio held up to his ear listening to the local rock station. After hearing Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel, he was bitten hard by the music bug and asked his parents to buy a guitar for him. He began to listen to all of Elvis's Sun Record pals, too, like Johnny Cash and Carl Perkins. Jim also became enamored with the lead guitar of Gene Vincent's band, the Blue Caps, and the harmonies that the Everly Brothers sang. Jim began to carry his electric guitar and transistor radio with him everywhere he went, including his school. He would play all the rock and roll songs for his classmates and loved the attention it got him, especially from the girls. The strings on his cheap guitar were hard to press down, and so while it was difficult for Jim to play chords, he found playing single-note lead guitar a lot easier. 
One day at school, the substitute music teacher had invited a guy named Bob Gibson to come play for the students. They gathered the whole school together in the gym. Bob was a five-string banjo player and a student of Pete Seeger's, but without the politics. McGuinn was so blown away by this music, he asked the music teacher what it was. His teacher informed him it was called folk music, and if he wanted to learn more about it, a new school had opened up in Chicago, where they lived, where Jim could go and learn more about folk music. In 1957, he enrolled as a student at Chicago's Old Town School of Folk Music. When McGuinn arrived at the school, he showed up with a little bit of a chip on his shoulder. After all, McGuinn thought, I already taught myself a few of these rock and roll songs and some of the lead guitar parts. How hard can this be? One of the first students McGuinn met was a young Jewish kid named Mike Bloomfield. Young Mike was an exceptionally gifted guitar player, but he couldn't figure out how to get the guitar to make the noise. McGuinn showed Mike how to bend a string on his guitar and get the sound he was chasing. McGuinn was rather full of himself. His first teacher, Frank Hamilton, however, put McGuinn in his place. He asked McGuinn if he knew anything besides the rock and roll songs. No, he didn't. Did McGuinn know the circle of fifths? No, McGuinn didn't know that. Oh, did he know how to play a blues progression? No, McGuinn didn't know that. Oh, well, can you finger pick? No, uh, he didn't know that either. McGuinn learned really fast that he had a lot to learn. While McGuinn's friend Mike Bloomfield was interested in chasing the blues guitar sound of Chicago, McGuinn was interested in chasing a different sound. He didn't yet have enough money for a banjo like he had seen Bob Gibson play. So he took all the strings off of his K-electric guitar, he drove a nail into the neck at the 8th fret, and tuned up his 6-string electric guitar like a 5-string banjo. Jim's newfound love of the banjo began to influence his guitar playing as well. McGuinn began to use metal finger picks along with a flat pick when he played guitar. He would play a lot of arpeggios and rolls on his guitar, just like his banjo hero, Earl Scruggs. Performing in coffee houses, Jim got fairly proficient fairly quickly. He got a job playing music in the Café Rue for $10 a night. McGuinn, still a young high school student living at home, was able to save up his money and buy a nice 12-string acoustic guitar and a real 5-string banjo. On a February night, a few years later, young Jim McGuinn stepped into the famous The Gate of Horn Folk Club carrying his banjo and guitar. As he stepped into the bar, he saw the band The Limelighters and Theodore Bakel. Alex Hasliv from The Limelighters asked McGuinn to join them on banjo since they already had three guitars going. McGuinn happily obliged. They jammed until 5 o'clock in the morning. The Limelighters were so impressed, they asked McGuinn to come back later that day to audition for the band. They sent him home with a record and told him to meet them back at the Gate of Horn at 1 that afternoon. Jim rushed home and put on the record. Fortunately, there were several songs on the record that he already knew. He made quick work of learning the rest of all the tunes. Jim showed up at the audition at 1 and passed with flying colors. Alex from the Lime Ladders was thrilled with Jim's playing. He asked Jim when he could join the band out on the road. McGuinn said probably in June, once he graduated from high school. The Lime Ladders' faces sunk. June? High school? Didn't we meet you in a bar last night? Needless to say, McGuinn didn't join the band on the road that day. The Limelighters did say they were recording an album for RCA in June, and they would come looking for the young kid then. 
McGuinn agreed, and the Limelighters went back to California, and McGuinn went back to high school. It was a long time between February and June for young Jim McGuinn. True to their word, the Limelighters did come calling and asked Jim if he would like to come to Los Angeles to play with them. His parents had to sign a waiver for the then-still 17-year-old high school graduate to fly out to California. But soon McGuinn was there with the folk trio. He played gigs at the famous Ash Grove with the band, even opening the show with a solo set. He played the Hollywood Bowl, opening for Arthur Kitt with the Limelighters. At the Ashgrove gig, McGuinn met a young actor, the son of a movie cinematographer. McGuinn went to see the play the actor was in, where all of the characters were in garbage cans and would pop out of the garbage cans to deliver their lines. After the play, the actor, David Crosby, took McGuinn around town in his convertible sports car. He asked McGuinn to show him a few chords as he was starting to learn the guitar himself. McGuinn noted that the young Crosby, while not yet a stellar guitar player, had a gift for finding and singing vocal harmonies. Summer of 1960, McGuinn spent living in California on the beach with some college students he was rooming with. At the end of the summer, he went north to San Francisco to meet up with the Limelighters. When he got there, he called the number they had given him, and it was disconnected. McGuinn was out of a gig and needed a job. Jim McGuinn started to hang around the Hungry Eye, the big folk club in San Francisco. He was playing gigs as a solo act when he got a phone call from the Gate of Horn in Chicago. The folk music community was small enough at that time that if you called one of the clubs in the big city, chances are you could find the musician you were looking for. Chad Mitchell was in New York City, living in Greenwich Village. He had a popular folk trio, but one of the members had gone back to college, so he needed to find some new musicians to play with. Chad had heard McGuinn on a record with the Limelighters and tracked him down. Chad flew McGuinn out to New York City. The two of them scoured the village looking for a third member for the trio, but no one fit the bill. Chad then drove them up to Cambridge to Club 47. McGuinn saw this beautiful older woman there. She was all of 19 years old to McGuinn's 18, with long flowing black hair and a voice that made both him and Chad Mitchell swoon. They asked her to join the trio, but the young Joan Baez declined, wanting to remain a solo singer. Back in the village, the group finally found their third member, a Broadway chorus singer named Joe Frazier. With Joe in the group, the trio went on to record several hit albums, tour the U.S., and even do a 90-day tour of South America. McGuinn felt like he had hit the big time. Back in the States, after the grueling South America tour, the Chad Mitchell trio had a gig at the Crescendo Club in L.A., opening up for the comedian Lenny Bruce. Bobby Darren... The crooner was in the audience that night to see Lenny. After the show, he approached the now world-traveled 19-year-old Jim McGuinn and told him he liked what McGuinn was doing on stage. Darren was looking to add a folk music segment to his nightclub act, and he wanted to hire McGuinn to be a part of it. McGuinn thanked him, but told Darren he already had a job with the Limelighters. Darren asked Jim how much he was making, and McGuinn told him. Darren offered to double his salary. McGuinn quit the Limelighters then and there. About a year and a half after McGuinn began to play guitar and sing with Darren, Darren became ill and had to retire from singing. Subsequently, Bobby Darren opened TM Music in New York City's Brill Building, hiring McGuinn as a songwriter for $35 a week. During 1963, McGuinn worked as a studio musician in New York, recording with Judy Collins and Simon and Garfunkel. Then on February 9, 1964, something happened in New York that changed Jim McGuinn's musical trajectory. The Beatles went on Ed Sullivan. McGuinn packed his bags and headed back to sunny Los Angeles. 
By the time Doug Weston gave McGuinn a job at the Troubadour, opening for Hoyt Axton, he had already begun to include Beatles songs in his act. He was giving a rock-style beat to a lot of traditional folk tunes. The crowd at the Troubadour hated it. They didn't like this rock and roll, and they didn't like McGuinn mixing this childish pop music with their folk songs. Except for one kid from Kansas named Gene Clark, who had just quit the new Christie Minstrels. <laughs> 